Hey, it's Kristen. You're listening to Rational in Portland. Welcome to Rational in Portland. I'm your host, Kristen. You can find me on Twitter at Rational in PDX. Today, our guest is Charles Lehman. Charles Lehman is a fellow at a place called the Manhattan Institute. Fellows research and engage in data analysis on various topics. Charles has written about policing. He's written about drugs. He has come to Portland and done extensive analysis and journalism about Portland and about Measure 110, which of course decriminalized all drugs in the state of Oregon. Charles Lehman has an article called This Is Your City on Fentanyl from summer of 2023. It was published in a publication called City Journal. And I will link to it in the show notes. I found it absolutely fascinating. Charles has also written about police. He's very knowledgeable about the city of Portland through his research and also through his time here as an investigative journalist. What I like about the Manhattan Institute and actually how I discovered Charles, who I've been following for some time and I'm a fan of, is that they sponsor and produce something called The Glenn Show, which is a podcast that I absolutely love. Glenn Lowry, G-L-E-N-N-L-O-U-R-Y. He is a black professor at Brown of economics, trained at MIT, and there are bi-weekly appearances on this podcast by another one of my favorites, John McWhorter, who's a black professor of linguistics at Columbia, but also writes about literally everything under the sun and has a standing column in the New York Times and bravo for them for recognizing John McWhorter's talents. But I just love hearing Glenn and John together. And then once I got hooked on that, thank you to my best friend for introducing me to it, I started digging into the Manhattan Institute and trying to figure out who else they had who was working on who were working on interesting subjects and engaging in dialogue about various topics and that's how I found Charles Lehman and I'm just so lucky that he was able to come on today. So Charles, welcome. Talk to us a little bit about how you got interested in Portland in particular. Yeah, you know, I think the the proximate answer is just that we at MI are always interested in specific cities and the problems of governance in specific cities. Um, so often it's the case you can try to make sort of big policy claims about what ought or ought not to be happening at the macro, at the national level or in all cities generally. But so many problems are local and so many lessons that generalize can only be learned by investigating local problems. Um, and so Portland is very interesting. You know, I think it would be it would be sort of one dimensional to say Portland is interesting as a case study in things not to do. Um, although in many cases, Portland is interesting as a case study in things not to do. But it's also interesting uh, in its in its own context. It's interesting as a rapidly growing city that recently started shrinking. It's interesting as a city in the Pacific Northwest. It's interesting as a 
it was it was it was the only uh, it was it was one of the only cities in America to use the commission system. Um, and my colleague John Ketcherman and I has done a bunch of work on the commission system. Um, that makes it interesting. So you know, I'm I'm always interested in that kind of case study. What can I learn? Not just by sort of talking at cities abstractly, but going to a specific city. And then I think also. Portland specifically was interesting to me and my colleagues because of those qualities. I mean, you know a fair amount about it for somebody who, have you ever lived here? What do you, um, it's amazing that you know about things like the commission system. A lot of people don't understand how our governmental system worked. Is, is that just through research or from visiting? Uh, both, um, as you alluded to, I've, I've come and visited Portland. The the article that you were talking about um, was the product of a, a reporting trip out there. Um, I spent a number of days in the city getting to know it, but also um, both my own research and then talking to colleagues about what they've learned about the city. Um, I mean, you know, again, I think local nuances are often almost as important as broad pictures, big picture stuff. Um and 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 Portland, Portland is very interesting. We, I think we'll talk about it later. I wrote this uh, piece of the Portland Police Bureau, um, and the Portland Police Bureau has its own idiosyncrasies that are very informative for my work on policing generally. I sort of come back to it over and over again in other conversations. Talk about how you know policing, police staffing as an issue, how to deal with police staffing as an issue, how to think about the problems in police staffing, um, because I developed a familiarity with it. I'm so glad that you brought that up because I was just at city council this week testifying against a ballot measure that would interfere with bargaining in regard to police and their unions that would allow people who, in my opinion, seem to want to abolish the police, to discipline the police, to interfere with uh, things like to, to be involved in police shooting investigations. I mean, these are people who have never been on police ride-alongs. These are people who don't really know the standard of reasonable police officer, and that really concerns me. And so I'm glad that you brought that up because my understanding, Charles, is that we are 48th out of 50th as far as our police per capita goes, as far as the top 50 big cities in the U.S. Is that your understanding? Yes, that's um that was my math using, and a number of other people also found this is uh, among the fifty largest cities in the United States. Portland is forty eighth. I forget one of the other ones is Bakersfield. Um, Bakersfield, by the way, is a really interesting city. Uh, Bakersfield is not a place that you want to go, um, and the reason for this is that so California gangs, the 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 prison gangs, the Norteños and the Serenios. The Norteños control the north half of California. The Serenios control the south half, and Bakersfield is right in the middle. And that is why Bakersfield has an insanely high homicide rate. So don't go to Bakersfield. Um, that's a side note. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, PPB has insanely low police to population ratio. Um, you want, so the national standard is uh, you want two, uh, two police officers for a uh, for every thousand people, more or less. And the figure for Portland, I think in the 2022 figure is 1.28 officers. Um, so that's really not very many. Um, that's a recent phenomenon. Uh, there's been a sort of a dramatic decline, but it's also a long run phenomenon as far as that ratio has been slipping slowly but steadily since the early 2000s. Um, and it's put, it's been enormously taxing for the department. We can talk about this, but you know, 
not having manpower has all sorts of obvious effects, but also all sorts of unintended consequences that are a real tax on the effectiveness of the department and therefore on quality of life and safety in the city. We'll expand upon that a little bit more. Tell yeah. us what you observed and what you noticed. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think when you get that low on the staffing ratio and when you hit the points that PPB has been hitting where you have fewer than 100 guys on your on your daily rotation um, at times, uh, you just don't have capacity to do anything. Um PPB, uh, non-homicide investigations are not being done. Uh, drug investigations are not being done. There's no longer uh, enforcement of bike lane safety. Uh, there are all sorts of other just sort of non-emergency tasks that are not being done. Um, there's no proactive policing that's happening. Um, all of that contributes to long-run deterrence of crime. And then also, separately, it's just the case that um, there's been a dramatic increase even in the amount of time that it takes to address emergencies, emergency calls for service. So, for example, um, in July of 2019, it took the Portland Police Bureau eight minutes to respond to a high priority call for service. Uh, in July of 2023, four years later, it was 24 minutes. Um, so that's a that's a tripling of the, and that, that, that's a high priority call. So if you have a low priority call, you can expect to wait an hour and a half. In Portland as of July. Um, so that's what happens when you don't have cops. It's like any organization. If you don't have staffing, things don't get done. In terms of the places that you've been, I mean, my understanding is just from following you, from following your work and reading it, you're a pretty well-traveled person nationally, internationally, been to a lot of cities. Yeah, no, I, 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 I try to cover ground. There's lots of places that I'd still like to go. Um, but just, you know, for example, I was just in Vancouver, British Columbia for several days trying to report on the drug scene there. And I um, I like to pride myself on if I go to a city, I like to see uh, the seedier side of it um, because that's always informative to my work. And so what would you say to the argument or the criticism that, hey, when you came to Portland, Charles, you were sort of looking for the seedier side of Portland? And when I ask you that question, I'm thinking about the people who tend to advance a narrative. And I don't think it's the majority, but I do think it's a vocal minority who, who advance the narrative that Portland is doing just great and that your kind of work contributes to something akin to quote unquote fear mongering. You know, look, I say a couple of things. On the one hand, there are lots of great places in Portland. Um, there are, I met lots of very nice people. I met I that's actually some very good restaurants while I was in Portland. Um, the city food scene, uh, I was I was quite impressed with. Um, that wasn't my primary focus. No, but, you know, <laughs> that said, a lot of the people that I talked to in those very nice, um, very pleasant contexts, all of them said, wow, Portland is much worse than it used to be. They were all quite unhappy with the direction that Portland has gone. Um, that doesn't surprise me. I think it was, I forget if it's 2021, 2022, Portland was the fastest shrinking big city in America after decades of population growth. And so that reflects the fact that people are leaving at a disproportionate rate. So they're clearly unhappy too. 
I mean, the you know the third point is it's not hard to find the disorder. You know, it one one could say I really had to go seek it out. Except uh, when I was there, you walk around downtown and there are people living in tents doing smoking drugs publicly in the open air uh not just a couple but large numbers of people so i think you almost have to walk around with your eyes shut to miss it uh the scale of the problem um so i guess you know my my response is you can think that that's true but uh i i I don't think that i agree i don't think that most portlanders agree and that's part of why they're concerned So, Charles, how do we roll this back? Because, you know, I'm part of this group called North America Recovers with uh, that was co-founded by Michael Schellenberger and people like Kevin Sabet, who is very active in helping us try to repeal or replace Measure 110, which, as you know, in Oregon, decriminalized all drugs. And one of the things that they tell me is, and and the Oregonian just reported on this actually, because there was a trip to Portugal that was funded largely by the Drug Policy Alliance, which as you know, brought Oregon Measure 110. And the Oregonian reported that they don't have fentanyl in Portugal. And they also, uh, I, I talked to Aaron Schmaltz, who's the head of the police union, who went on this trip. He funded, the police union funded that for him. He didn't take drug policy money. But what he said is they also don't have the guns that we have. And unfortunately, here in Portland, everybody's got a gun. Everybody involved in the drug trade, homeless people in tents, they all have guns. And so um, I, in terms of looking at comparisons between, and of course, Portugal's going downhill a little bit, right? Like we saw that Washington Post article about how they're running out of money for things like infrastructure and even Zhao Gulao, the guy who came up with all the rehab and detox infrastructure, the doctor seemed frustrated. But um, I'm just wondering, you know, with Portland being unique in that sort of unique position where we've got fentanyl, we have guns, we have these kinds of things that these European countries, I mean, according to Dr. Zhao Gulao, fentanyl is coming. We have it now. Um, how do we how do we roll this back here in Portland? We need some help here. You know, what are your thoughts on that? Because fentanyl obviously is a chemical. It's cheap. They're pumping it out. Uh, it costs, what, a dollar a pill, I think, the last time I checked uh, with PPB a couple of weeks ago. We're not farming poppies here. Yeah. I mean, what do we what do we do about all this? That's an easy question. No, um, <laughs> it's a big question. You know, I, I, I first of all, it's right that uh, Portland has fentanyl. And by the way, Portland didn't have fentanyl five, six years ago. Um, Portland sort of there, there was, I think, an opportunity for the West Coast to deter the spread of fentanyl, and they missed the bus on that. Um, and one thing I would say for the policy What should we have done? I'm sorry to interrupt you, but just- Yeah, like, no, no. Well, so you have the opportunity to do this now. Um, you don't have a xylosine problem yet. And for, for your listeners, xylosine is a is a, a separate animal tranquilizer that's often, that's on the in the East Coast, particularly in Philly, mixed in with fentanyl. Um, it's is that known as Trank? Even, yes, that's Trank. We have that. We um, do have that. You're starting to get it. You are right. not saturated with You're it right. yet. You're right. It's yeah. not like Kensington yeah. quite yet. Yeah. yeah. In, in in Philly, something like 60% of fentanyl samples samples have xylosine. So that's right. that's done. 
Um, the, the theoretically, what you want to be doing right now, as aggressively as possible, is, for lack of a term, deterring xylazine. Um, clearly and publicly communicating to dealers that if they step on their drugs with xylazine, they will be with trank, they will be identified, they will be prosecuted the false standard law, they will go away. Um, that's that's sort of a, a strategy that maybe could have worked five years ago with fentanyl. It's not going to work anymore. Um, why isn't it going to work anymore? I mean, obviously, it's myriad, right? We've got the policing issues. So how do you get enough police to even do it? But let's pretend like we didn't have policing issues. Could we do it? Yeah, so, I mean, the, the answer is that basically it's much harder to suppress. A, it's much harder to suppress a big market than a small one. Um, getting a couple of guys to fall in line is much, much more straightforward from a resource and enforcement perspective. Preserving a, a norm of not doing something is much easier than uh, getting rid of a big market. Once everybody's made the fentanyl transition, it's much, much harder. Um, and from there, you sort of have to think about other approaches. Um, the the thing, though, about you know Oregon and Portland versus Portugal, um, when people talk to me about Portugal, what I'd like to say is, look, uh, the Portuguese did a number of things in the early 2000s to respond to their heroin crisis. One of them was the decriminalization of drugs. Another one was the dramatic scaling to treatment on demand through a centralized healthcare funding system, which, by the way, as you alluded to, the funding for that uh, as as, as a function of continuing austerity is is, is reducing. Um, And then a third one is creating this system of of commissions for desistance where people who use drugs in problematic fashions are strongly encouraged uh, to consider the merits of treatment. Um, measure yeah, one takes none of this. There's right. intervention yeah. and it's stigmatized. There's, yeah, well, and, 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 you know, as I like to say, as we all learned over the past three years, public health can be plenty coercive when it wants to be. Um, it, it's, it's entirely possible. And there are benefits to that. Look at tobacco. Um, right, right. Um, but so measure 110 in Oregon did none of that. It, it, it nominally allocated a bunch of funding to treatment and, but really uh, peer support services. And it's not obvious to me that most of the money is actually going towards expanding treatment. I think a lot Talk of- Talk to us about peer support, because I hear that all the yeah. time. Right. So peer support very narrowly. Um, and, and, and and I think done right is a good model, right? The, the idea is that people who have recovered from addiction are uniquely positioned to help other people recover. That makes sense to me. I buy that. Um, I've never been addicted to drugs. I don't know what it's like. I don't know what that struggle is like. I think there's value to giving people, um, you know, peer peer support is the 12 step model, right? You go to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, you're meeting with peers, you're working through and the same thing's true of Narcotics Anonymous. Um, On the other hand, peer support can also mean giving money to people who are identified as peers, quote unquote, who are participating in often poorly covered, poorly uh, uh, non-transparent nonprofit entities, uh, which take money from the state and invest in the kind of services that you're talking about, Uh, food, uh, uh, phone cards, technology, acupuncture is very hip in this space for some reason. Um, Because it's Portland. Yeah. yeah, Right. You see acupuncture everywhere. I don't understand it. Um, I think sometimes uh, it works, but I and unless we we can draw some data yeah, to, to help get people off of drugs with acupuncture, um, I don't know. And and you know I think that I think it often in in practice it often flows to people 
who believe on an ideological level that it is bad to try to get people off of drugs, that you have to meet people where they're at. You have to try as hard as possible just to wait it out until they are ready to deal with their addiction. Um, in the meantime, you should make life as comfortable as possible for them. You should hand out socks. You should hand out new clothes. You should give them all of these things um, in order to make their lives more pleasant, which is admirable, I guess. But it's not dealing with the core problem in their lives, which is that they are addicted to a toxic, likely deadly substance. Um, if you're ideologically opposed to dealing with that, you're just going to wait around until they die, which is why decriminalization is, even in the papers, the analyses that are written by people who are supporters of decriminalization, there's no effect of it on overdose deaths. Um, in, the, in the less supportive paper, uh, overdose deaths go up. And I think there's, that's a more plausible explanation for reasons I can get into. Um, but at the very least, nobody has proved, nobody's provided any evidence that decriminalization led to a decline in overdose deaths, which is what was sold for Measure 110. Um, well, let's, first of all, I guess I have, I have a few follow-ups. Um, my understanding is you've talked to these harm reduction drug policy people, is that right? Yes, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I know a number of them. I think... Uh, some of them are a little cuckoo, but some of them are like, you know, and, and the, the, the thing, by the way, that I'll say is that I believe that many of them are well-intentioned. Um, many of them genuinely believe that what they're doing is helping people. And I think that's admirable. Yeah, no, I do too. Um, one question I have is whether the uh, people behind 110, is it, is it, and I know I'm generalizing here, right? I mean, this, this is a rather large group of harm reductionist for a better, lack of a better term, that I think that's what they'd want to call themselves, people. Um, a question that I always have, though, is, is it really a goal that we get these people drug treatment? Is that a goal? And if it is a goal, is it high priority? And by treatment, I mean detox and rehab and off the street. I think that the answer to that question is yes, in theory, but only insofar as it does not limit their autonomy, quote unquote, um, that that there is a great fear in this community of any pushing or prodding to get people into treatment. Um, that, you know, the, the belief is that what stops people from going to treatment is stigmatization. Um, what stops people from going to treatment is, uh, you know, a sense that they're unworthy, that they're less valuable. And so we just sort of need to affirm and support people. There's no, it's all carrot, no stick. Um, the reality is that works for some people. That is what some people need. There are also other people who what they need is to be told that they need to go into treatment. There are some people who what they need is for their own good to be ordered into treatment by a court of law. Um, so, you know, I think I think it's important to recognize that uh, they, right, they, 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 they will certainly say that they are in favor of treatment. I believe that in most cases. But they will also, I think, not take the steps that are necessary for actually getting many people into treatment. Do, is there data on, now, now I agree with you, there are plenty of people who voluntarily seek treatment. And I know this because we have very few, as you know, Charles, and you've reported on this, we don't have the infrastructure that a city who decriminalizes all drugs should have to deal with addiction, addiction crisis. And it's my understanding that we have the worst rate of, uh, in fact, the worst rate of access to treatment in the country. Is that your understanding? 
Yes. Um, as of 2022, I think uh, Oregon had the lowest the lowest share of the population in need of substance use disorder treatment that was not getting it. And then there are a variety of measures by which like Oregon just lags the rest of the country in general in availability of treatment services. Um, and I think you're absolutely correct that 110, you know, and this is one of the good things about 110, right? And everybody who wants to reform 110 will say, we want to keep the part where we invest money in treatment. That is good um, because the state needs it. And the question is, is the money currently going towards that? And if not, why not? What can we do about it? And how do we define treatment? Do we define treatment as FOIL or do we define treatment as detox and rehab, right? So there's a yeah. so a ideological difference, I think, in how we define treatment. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. Well, you know, normally I talk about FOIL as sort of a harm reduction service, um, facilitating, quote unquote, safer drug use. Um, no, you know, uh, treatment. And, and and there's disagreement here, right, about what good treatment looks like. There are lots of different uh, therapeutic approaches. They all sort of work differently. Um, some are good for some people and some are good for other people. Some of it's about the availability of medication, um, which Oregon lags on as well. Um, there were a lot, there's, there are lots of, you know, tre getting treatment right is really hard. I think you find in the literature that even with access to good treatment, something like half of people who go into treatment will relapse at some point. Um, but the reality is a one in two chance is still better than a one in one chance of relapse, which is one of the benefits of treatment. So there's lots of low hanging fruit that can help bring that rate down compared to where Oregon is right now. Do, do we have any data on, I mean, again, I, I know that there are people voluntarily seeking treatment because we have so few, by treatment, I mean detox and rehab, because we have so few detoxes and rehabs and you can, you can see there's a line outside and these people are getting turned away and it's absolutely tragic. And these are people that are voluntarily seeking it. Um, but do we have data about whether, and, and you're familiar with this because you understand the drug issue and addiction issues. There, generally, with drug addiction as a disease, there's a lack of insight about the need to get off the drugs. And would you, I mean, don't you agree with that? You mean from the perspective of the person who's addicted? Yep. Yeah. I mean, you know, there are different models and uh, all models are bad. Some models are useful. It's the classic line. Um, one model is that, you know, uh, addiction is brain disease. Um, addiction sort of hijacks the central nervous system. Another model is that addiction is a, is a, a learning disability, um, that, that it's, it's sort of a, a misrouting of how humans learn and reinforce behaviors. Um, another model is that sort of, for lack of a better term, addiction is an error in our uh, what do you call our utility functions, the way that we value things, that certain goods can hijack that function. Um, but I think in all of them, you, you sort of end up in this, in this weird situation, right, where what is locally rational is globally irrational for the individual. In any given circumstance, continuing to use drugs in the long run is bad for persons who take drugs. And usually they know that, not always, but usually they are on some level cognitively aware that particularly deeply harmful drug use is bad for them. They would prefer that they were not addicted to drugs. But also in each local individual instance, uh, the uh, pangs of withdrawal, also the euphoric effects, the positive effects of using drugs outweigh that long-run interest. Um, you know, there's there's a certain amount of that that conflict and rationality. There are different ways to model it, but that's you know, that's the essential feature, right? That that paradox is the essential feature of addiction is uh, uh 
it, it would be good for me to quit, but it's also in a sense good. It's rewarding for me to keep going. Um, and it's overcoming that that's the real challenge. Yeah, and it's a bit, I mean, I, in Portland, just looking around, it's a big challenge. Do you have any data about people who are able to voluntarily seek treatment for fentanyl addiction? Uh, what percentage of people addicted to fentanyl are going to be voluntarily seeking treatment? without drug court, without any sort of intervention? Uh, I don't have a figure off the top of my head. What I would say in general that we can describe from uh, sort of patterns of drug use specifically is, so, so a couple of things are true. One is that there's sort of an invisible mass of people who will face into and out of drug addiction generically, either with some treatment or no treatment at all, um, they'll, be, they'll, they'll have a drug problem for a while and then they'll overcome the drug problem. This can be, you know, Maybe everybody knows the guy who was a little too into cocaine in college for a year. Think about that guy. Um, then there are people for whom addiction is particularly disabling, particularly a problem. Uh, and those people are, their addiction causes them to live on the street. Their addiction causes them to do harm to themselves or to others. Um, those people are both the most severely addicted and those, because they're the most severely addicted, least likely to be able to overcome that problem. Um, those are the people who need, at the very least, a little bit of a nudge, certainly a great deal of help and a great deal of care and compassion, but also sometimes not a nudge. And you know, my, my view is if you are so disabled by your addiction that you cannot provide for yourself, that you are living on the street, that you are routinely a harm to yourself and others, that's a perfectly reasonable context for the state to get involved, assuming that the state is providing you with a high quality of compassionate care. Isn't, isn't there also a difference in, I mean, I'm asking about your research and what you know about, isn't there a difference between, you know, the stockbroker with a cocaine issue or, or who does bumps on the weekends? Although, you know, I mean, there, there was a New York Times front page story about how you probably shouldn't be doing that anymore since it all seems to have fentanyl in it. And, and a fentanyl addiction? Um, it is, it is the case that fentanyl is much more potent, um, Opioid addiction is also much more long-lasting than stimulant addiction, but but you know I think uh, the the risks associated with fentanyl addiction are higher. The the deaths addiction are higher. It is not the case that everybody who tries fentanyl ends up here to do it. It's not the case that everybody who tries fentanyl has their life ruined. Would I recommend trying fentanyl? No, not at all. Does fentanyl <laughs> make the situation much worse? Yes, absolutely. Um, my only point is you know there's there's a spectrum, and really where you have to focus is the people who are the, the people who are so disabled by their addiction that they're living lives of profound dysfunction and saying, how can I help those people? Sort of the top priority. And that's going to be true for fentanyl, probably more than it is for cocaine, but it'll be true for both. Charles Lehman, thank you so much. Thank you for your work. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on the show.